I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. We love to watch wants to know if if we could just think about me for a second. Peter, it's all I ever talk do. about <laughs> yourself. <laughs> I, I I genuinely uh, just started this podcast so other people could hear me talk and I could edit and listen to myself talk for four hours a week. So it is true. We, yeah. we may talk about this on a future episode, but really the the key, I think, what the longevity of this podcast, why uh, Peter and I get so much enjoyment is that. The amount of real-time feedback we have to take is zero. <laughs> and even if we get annoyed by something the other person says, we can make it disappear for all eternity. Uh, and really, that that ability to play God in a very narcissistic way is ideal, which must be why, like, let's just be real for a second, why so many white straight people gravitate towards <laughs> podcasting. But that's a topic for a different day. The, the silent generation. We're not here to talk about things that are real. This is not about real life. We're talking about real life. Yeah, Ethan, this is real. real life. We're talking about this real is real too, Ethan. This pod, there's no script here. I oh then I should that's throw some stuff says. away because I <laughs> yeah that's not- I've been working so hard. Uh, this is uh, the but first no. episode where I have uh, we've all recorded on location in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I hope you both liked your accommodations. Um, Aaron, I had you picked up from the airport in a limousine, and Ethan, I just your Airbnb was kind of close to the airport, so I pointed you in the direction of the Airbnb. Anything's better than and- winter in Wisconsin, right? <laughs> uh, and to get guess. you guys started, uh, we're yeah. going to kick off with a little song uh, that goes, uh, uh, where we love to watch movie podcast, pick a theme, do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast and we're in our third week of uh Moran on Brooks. I don't know if we did. We probably came up with the name at some point uh, where we're covering the films of Albert Brooks for Peter, a person who up until a couple weeks ago had never seen any Albert Brooks movie. Now this is his third one. And instead of doing them in order, we decided to note that his first four movies are his best uh, and maybe four of the best comedies of the last like 40 years. Um and but they they almost have I think uh, uh, small groupings within those four, which we talked about the last couple of weeks. That modern romance and defending your life are this idea of like uh, a both a cynical and then a somewhat non cynical breaking out of your shell version of 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 love and romance and what it means to exist in a, in a world where relationships and your life matters. And th- these next two movies are really Albert Brooks' take on uh, on America, uh, and the the and what it the narcissism of American citizens and show business and and everything else. So we're doing real life today with Ethan, with guest Ethan Warren, which we'll introduce more in a second. His first and um, I love movie. to watch. Oh no. You- you love to watch, we know. Uh, and then we'll be capping off next week with Lost in America, his uh, his movie about, uh, uh, I, I believe, uh, guest who will no longer be guest, but they were try. They, we, we'll, we'll end up doing something with them um, because they love this movie. Called it uh, uh, a boomer telling on himself, and I think that is an apt 
description of of Lost in America, which again I think I think hits at some of the same themes as as real life. But before we get that far, Ethan Warren's already proudly announced himself. Uh, noted uh, that he had appeared on sh- such shows as Good Night Saturday and <laughs> some other ones. Because God oh, forbid anyone know Albert Brooks was on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, why don't you why don't you introduce yourself more to our audience? A boomer telling on himself. Every Albert Brooks movie is about him telling on himself. I know. I love it. It's yeah, sort of the, one, the like, text. Explicitly. Yeah. Do you, well, I'm supposed to tell people about myself? Yeah. Tell. Yeah. Why don't you tell mm. on yourself to our audience? I'm going to tell been on myself. You've been on, and the last, I think, some of the recent times you've been on there wasn't a lot of space for sincerely telling people who you are (laughs) no i i exist in two timelines on we love to watch and one is where i talk about interesting movies like tall tale and bram stoker's dracula and home alone and the other ones are the the sort of take place in a sort of uh we call it like a mouth of madness where there are no rules of reality and that's that's what I do when I come on this show is either exist in reality or a sort of sphere of unreality. And I think this one's going to be in reality, but I'm exceptionally tired because I have three little kids and I don't sleep anymore. So we'll see whether yeah. this is uh, is a reality or an unreality episode. I'm Ethan Warren and I love to watch and I am an editor for the online film journal Brightwall Dark Room and am working on a book called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, colon, American Apocrypha for Columbia University Press that will hopefully be out by the end of calendar year 2022. And I love so, to watch. So damn excited. <laughs> so exciting. Um, way more exciting like- than all the times recently you've been cheating on us with other podcasts and or creating your own. <laughs> oh, that's right. I am also creating a podcast, which will be out sometime this year, and you will learn more about it at that time. I wonder if we'll work that into our uh, feud situation. We'll That's see. true. Yeah. Uh, it is very weird uh, whenever a new PTA project pops up or a trailer for it pops up or just he says a fun – he gives a funny interview or something. Um, he gives get, a as, horrifically I, annoying interview about how his movies aren't racist because whatever. Ugh, Paul, yeah. <laughs> you're making my life very difficult lately. Yeah. Uh, uh, whenever that ha- that pops up uh, – well, well, I guess for the positive things, I go, oh my god, I'm, I'm so excited. Ethan has more stuff that he has to somehow collate into the this massive project that oh yeah like so how excited. all of a sudden they're like oh now we're putting a brand new music video in front of licorice pizza it's like god i guess i'm gonna go watch licorice pizza again just to watch this music video that's fascinating and i have to write about it it's amazing it's a beautiful <laughs> little work of art paul thank you thanks paul for giving me more of your work paul <laughs> yeah we that have, excites we have a me what excites me more uh what excites me more every time there's a new pta uh project is that uh that clickhole article about the clam bucket resurfaces yeah that's actually how i know that there's a new pta uh paul thomas anderson movie or project on the horizon because i start seeing on twitter (laughs) (laughs) the clickhole celebrity quotes paul thomas anderson said what about his clam bucket uh and it tells you i guess who my twitter follows are (laughs) <laughs> and if you want, you. we can start a GoFundMe to bribe whoever edits your book uh, to not um, not edit out any mentions of Clam Bucket. I've been trying yeah. for two years to figure out how to get the Clam Bucket in there, and it's it's we're we're down to the wire, and I'm determined to make it happen. 
<laughs> Gotta get the clam bucket in. As of February 23rd, you heard it here first, folks. As of February 23rd, 2022, the clam bucket is not present. It's not in the book. So if you get it, know that it's partially – if you get it and you see the clam bucket version, know that you either have a limited edition, which you should be very proud to own, or something – you know, this podcast made a little (laughs) bit of difference. Related to clam buckets. Uh, I love when Ethan mentions being tired. We mentioned we need to get into it. <laughs> get into it. <laughs> Let's talk about whether you can add five-year-old references to clickable articles in your upcoming work that's probably sucked quite a lot of your life out of you. But let's let let let's get into it. So we talked early on uh, in this month uh, with Peter about how even though he you know was familiar with Albert Brooks in in, in some capacity, he'd actually never seen an Albert Brooks directed movie, which is also part of the reason we decided to do this month um ethan we gave you the choice i think of all four of these movies you picked real life uh so what tell us a little bit of what's your experience with uh with albert brooks in general and why did you gravitate towards picking uh real life well for one thing it, it is the only one of these movies i hadn't seen at the time that you were giving me options yeah i i saw defending your life when i was very young and like too young to kind of like make much sense of it or process it. And I think I just kind of like categorized it as not for me because it's You're like this wasn't in the catechism. <laughs> well, it's it's that is not a movie for children in like any <laughs> capacity. <laughs> no, we, ta- we did talk. We did talk about that where uh, Peter asked me if I'd show my kids this. I'm like, well, not I wouldn't not because of any objection to what they would see, but just because uh, they would ruin my movie watching experience. Well, I just kind of like so bored. It's a a movie about like sort of existential distress and i think i just bounced off it and then um all the all of his movies or, or some number of them went up on the criterion channel about a year ago and i caught up with uh is it modern romance is that the title yeah um yep. fell head over heels in love with that movie which is just whatever an hour and a half of albert brooks just being the world's biggest problem which is <laughs> kind yes. of i mean we can talk about his star persona because it, it is so fascinating to me the sort of okay. the the version of himself that he creates and and this movie real life being the sort of apotheosis of that as he is ostensibly playing himself um and I saw Lost in America shortly after Modern Romance, another great one, kind of didn't hit me quite as hard, I think, because of the proximity um, to having just watched the the movie that totally knocked me out. And this movie I gravitated to also because I have been fascinated for a long time with the movie that it is, it is riffing on, or, or the, the TV series, An American Family from 1973, um, which I haven't actually watched all that much of the series, but I am just sort of fascinated. You threatened to. I well, I tried, and I really bounced off the production values of 1973 PBS documentary filmmaking. <laughs> um, uh, also, probably, I imagine, like uploaded in 480p to YouTube. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was just. Watching I didn't some know. Clips. I mean, yeah. I know it says. Well, I paid attention to it more. So at the beginning of this movie, there's a title card that says like this. You know, Albert Brooks making this movie was inspired by the PBS documentary. I thought that was a joke. For some reason, it never clicked with me that it was a real documentary mm. until – yeah, until it was real life. Until Ethan was like, I'm going to try to watch all 12 hours. And I'm uh, like, that threw me off a lot because I, I knew American Family uh, – well, the American Family, excuse me, uh, was a real thing because we watched uh, an episode of it in a gender studies class in college. Ooh. Um, 
And uh, it was supposed to be sort of about... Hopefully I, not as, like, an example of the, no, the goal. No. My, <laughs> like, this is ideal. <laughs> no, my, my gender studies professors were all uh, way, 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 uh, way hip with, uh, with what you're supposed to... How you're supposed to uh, treat these, these subjects. This was him essentially sort of indicating, like, how American attitudes towards sex have changed over time and, like, how American attitudes towards media have changed over time. And it's not necessarily a, a, a straight um, progression upward and, and forward yeah. always. Um, anyways, that's not really the important part. The important part is that I was immediately thrown off by that um, opening crawl because it would be like if at the beginning of Spaceballs, they were like, hey, this is a parody <laughs> of the movie Star Wars, but however, has no relation to Star Wars. Oh, I disagree so strongly. Star Wars. Yeah, I do too. I, 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 what I love about this is it, it, it creates the impression of Albert Brooks. It's, it's like a prologue to the movie that you just see in your head. Which is that Albert Brooks is sitting at home. Albert Brooks, the character (laughs) played by Albert Brooks, the man um, is sitting at home watching the pioneering 12 hour documentary series, an American family, which for the listener was a series where just a camera crew installed themselves in the home of this California family for about a year and watch them absolutely devour themselves and the family, the marriage fell apart and, and all of these fascinating things. And Albert Brooks is just watching and going, I could do this and I <laughs> could get famous and rich doing this. <laughs> I could do this, but I could do it better by me being part of it. And that is just such I an mean, he says pretty clearly his goal is to win an Oscar and a Nobel. Yes. It's such it's such a beautiful comic premise that they just sort of throw at you with a title card and then dump you right into. So I, I adore that. Yeah, I I do you know, we'll, we'll probably get into it pretty quick, but I I you know we're talking about with modern romance, like how brave it is to like, you know, to portray yourself so unflatteringly on film, you know, modern romance. He is, uh, you know, I, I think Peter described it as like someone who at first you're like, okay, his behavior is bad because he's heartbroken. And I can relate to some of the specific machinations or rituals that he's going through, through the depths of a, ill thought through breakup and then by the end you just realize he gets more and more irredeemable until he's just completely just a just a monster of a person a a low-key monster but a very recognizable one and you realize like you know there's there's a bravery to portraying yourself as like unredeemable and then you know it's it's it then always shocks me or re-shocks me that like in his first movie and, you know, he was definitely an alt comic and popular, but he wasn't huge. This movie didn't help make him huge. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, here he is. He, he's directing his first movie. He plays himself. And I just cannot imagine in a, a, a more unflattering portrayal of, like, of yourself. Literally, your your named self on, on screen in a motion picture. Well, so there's... I, I just mentioned the sort of Albert Brooks star persona and what I think it is is that he's playing a guy who is constantly kind of at war with what an asshole he is Yeah, because he he plays the world's worst behaviors with this wounded puppy dog attitude so you kind of can't help 
sympathizing with him a little bit because he seems so earnest and so sincere. <laughs> and trying so hard. As he is being yeah. the, the just as you say, descending and descending into the pits of just abject horribleness. <laughs> And it's it's I can't think of anything to compare it to, um, you know, sort of executed at such a high level. And, and it's there's a reason these four movies have endured as as so special for so long. Yeah, yeah. We, a, we talked about that, like, as even though he was compared very early to like Woody Allen, the, we talked about this, especially on Modern Romance. The difference is, is that. You're supposed to like Woody Allen was a character in the 70s and 80s movies. You're supposed to see him as uh, in the same way you almost saw see Larry David, right? Like he's 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 expressing feelings that everyone has, and he is ultimately the hero, even a hero that sometimes puts his foot in his mouth and does things that are that are insensitive and hurtful. Because, but you know, don't we all do that? He's he's a nerdy guy. He, you know, he's not great at all this stuff. But at the end of most Woody Allen movies of the seventies and eighties, he ends up with some version of a happy ending and you're supposed to somewhat root for him. And I think the real difference we discovered in Modern Romance, which goes through the, through this movie especially, less so in Defending Your Life, is that, like, you are absolutely not supposed to root for for Albert Brooks. Like, yes, he is playing a – he has a similar low-stated st- awkward sense of humor, but um, but you you at no point should be rooting for him. Yeah, and I, I think that one thing that we discussed this movie um, without I, me being yeah we discussed this movie with uh without me having seen it um about uh, six months ago or so when we did Spinal Tap and uh, Aaron had mentioned that um, Aaron had mentioned that uh, this movie and Spinal Tap reminded each other uh. He reminded this movie reminded uh, him of Spinal Tap somewhat, but having seen it, it's very interesting that it doesn't. While it has moments that consciously sort of construct uh, a Spinal Tap like mockumentary feeling, um, the movie can't be contained in that way. Like the, the 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 movie Spinal Tap and all the Christopher Guest movies that came after that sort of uh, have a nice safe frame to view it through, and you can sort of have a moral or uh, a sort of comedic distance, um, like a wide shot kind of distance from the action. Um, and even though some of it is very touching, especially on repeat watches, like we talked about how Spinal Tap is just like a, a loving story of a family and how Best in Show has all these like lovable characters. This is, is um, it, it uses the mockumentary format at times and it has a lot to say about that, but it it's really not confined by that at all. And some of the most brutal stuff it does happens when um, it's sort of embracing the the meta text of it that like this movie is no longer about this family. It's about Albert Brooks and it's just Albert Brooks talking to a camera. And in that way, it almost reminds me of like um, the YouTube era of people breaking down in front of the camera. Um, It reminds me of, uh, the uh, guys filming videos about breakups and their political uh, their political uh, pit things that piss them off uh, while they're in their car um, like that that sort of uh, variety of filmmaking is what it reminds me of more and in that sense like the the sort of meta-ness of it breaking down and it just ending up becoming like a confessional about the inability to produce something that's truly genuine um, it, that feels 
far flung and uh, really ahead of its time. Uh, and it feels more dangerous and cutting because of it. Because by the end of the movie, I had absolutely no idea where it was going. I knew the project was going downhill, but like you could see that from the opening scene um, with the uh, the professor walking out of the walking out of the the, the sort of presentation hall or the theater. Um, but beyond that, you don't actually know where it's going to go. You don't know how damaged people are going to be by this by the end. And what you don't realize is that it's not actually about this family falling apart. It's kind of more about Albert Brooks falling apart. Well, it, it, it is. And that pro- that professor being maybe the most fascinating character in this movie, but we can get oh. to that. It's It's <laughs> almost hard to watch this movie at this point, I think, and grasp how ahead of its time it is because yeah an american family was absolutely like lightning in a bottle there had never been anything like this it's decades before reality tv and he grabs that yeah, only the up series maybe yeah right, right. seven up would have been 14 up would have been and maybe even 21 up is all before this sure but just the idea of but those were like 30 minutes short yeah and they're not like verite that's that's it's all yeah. um you know sort of talking heads to camera yeah uh, or not all but but predominantly and the idea that that he grabbed this this thing and just a few years later turned it on its head and identified all of the weird little sort of idiosyncrasies and the you know, contradictions in the idea of verite filmmaking right away. I mean, it's, it's yeah. pretty visionary and it's, it's, I think hard for me to even wrap my, my brain around at this point when we've been steeped <laughs> yeah. in reality. It, it's almost, yeah, it's almost too, like it's so far ahead of its time that it feels like prescient in a way that's almost uninteresting to talk about just because it, 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 it predicted so much. I remember like probably, you know, Ethan, you're, you you're a little um, – maybe Peter as well. I'm not trying to age you out of it, Peter, but yeah, I guess you would have been eight years old. Um, but, like, I remember seeing The Truman Show in 1998 in theaters and loving it. And I remember feeling like, you know, it was it was like, oh, my God. If, if, they, if they had a show like The Truman Show – uh, that that would that would be the way that audiences reacted like they were watching a soap opera like this these people weren't real and they were just characters on a television show and like the way that everyone like has true in pillowcases and you know the way the audience reacted just felt like that was that was how it would play out and it didn't take long for you know for from from seeing that in theaters in 1998 to feel like that was prescient and way ahead of its time, even though a couple years later, you have we have stuff like Big Brother and Survivor, and you're like, oh, all those things the Truman Show said came true. And so it blew my fucking mind when I saw this, you know, 10, 15 years later, whenever it was. And it was like, this was 20 years before the Truman Show. And it was it, – it got all of it right. It got the way – that the way that like you know the uh, the idea that like reality show presents unreality but also in a weird way destroys destroys everyone's like credibility behind the camera too like the level of manipulation and if you're like thinking about it like an experiment or something i think it's i do sometimes have a strange if uh, not strange but i have a like guilty pleasure affinity for like some of the more convoluted reality dating shows my wife and i were just like watching uh love is blind which is i I was also watching that earlier today there you go it's i mean it's a catchy one right because like it 
but it but everyone in that show calls it like we're doing this for the experiment. We need to trust the process. And there's like a lie that everyone has kind of agreed to that this is some sort of like scientific or meritous experiment to have people find love without looks getting in the way when a tons of people don't prioritize looks in a relationship every day you know and then do they do they do they you don't think that there's people out there that don't prioritize looks in a relationship Uh, we can talk about this another time (laughs) Uh, why don't we talk about uh, all the uh, wives on sitcoms? They clearly don't. Oh, you're right. Yeah, there you speaking go. of real wives, life. Speaking of real <laughs> life, the wives on sitcoms. No, but so. Um, uh, but the but the other what thing I'm is saying that, like, is we are all, all incredibly handsome people, obviously, because we are married and because everybody prioritizes looks. The fact that we are married is a testament to our own innate handsomeness. And that's my point. I agree. I, to be clear, I agree about that for us. I like that for us. Uh, but I'm just saying for other people, they've t- chosen a different path. And I, I think that we should respect them. Um, but, but, but the way that they all talk about it, like it's a, like it's a scientific experiment. Like it's something like, you know, worthy of the Nobel. Like it's something that is advancing humankind's understanding of romantic relationships. It's so goddamn fucking funny to me because every I think everyone on some level, like I don't know if it's a lie agreed upon or just like the you know, certain people are sort of understand that's how they talk about it or whatever it is. But the fact that everyone acts like, you know, got to trust the process. The process is just a few lunatic producers at Netflix trying to figure out how to make money. Like that they've involved a couple of social scientists into the ex- grand experiment is like, I don't know how much closer you could get to fucking an Albert Brooks joke <laughs> that happened 50 years ago or 40 years ago. Well, one thing about the it, it's it's hard for me not to to connect this to an american family and thank goodness he acknowledges it explicitly on screen so i can i can claim that it is textually significant is they were really trying to draft off margaret mead the the guy who who made that series had just made a documentary on margaret mead and that triggered his that Margaret Mead, the, the anthropologist, and that triggered this interest in like, could I do the anthropology of the American family? And so he's Brooks is just cranking that even further and further and further into the realm of like ridiculous pseudoscience, which is so funny. It is so good. I mean, I I'll tip my hand a little bit and say I maybe something I I really love is that we don't agree on how good this movie is because all of us logged it on Letterboxd yesterday and I gave it four stars and Pete gave it four and a half and Aaron gave it five. So we all the way, baby. We all think this movie is pretty great, but we're not sure about how great. And I'm on the lowest (laughs) end. And I read Roger Ebert's review, which he gave it one star. He hated it. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of get some of his points, one of which is that the beginning chunk is by far the sort of funniest and most engaging where you are at – it is my opinion that that is by far the most engaging when you're visiting the the scientific laboratory. institute. Yeah, the institute where he is studying human behavior to identify this this (laughs) ultimate American family. And 
I I don't have a better point. It's just funny as hell. <laughs> I, think- I I do think those are some early fun moments. Even though I would, I I, I don't want to criticize the first ten minutes as being like perfect, and that I consider like all of it being perfect. But I mean, Ebert was right to identify that as very funny points. I don't know why he didn't like the the other eighty nine minutes as much. But I one of the things that's so goddamn funny about Ebert's review is that like. In 1979, when this came out, the documentary was still kind of a very niche, um, like, way to make movies. Like, there obviously were documentaries, and some of them were popular, but, like, this is, like, pre-kind of the era of even, like, hoop dreams and the idea of, like, you know, those kind of big documentaries, let alone, like, when you get into the 2000s and you have stuff like March of the Penguins and Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11 that are, like, you know, doing, like – you know, blockbuster numbers and making just a ridiculous amount of 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 money back. But one of the, his criticism in the review is like, do we really need a parody of the documentary format? And I, I just think that's so, f- like, in retrospect, so funny. Yeah, so it's, it's funny that, like, I get that the documentary had less examples of it. Uh, I think this is even pre... Is this pre, um, what, the first Errol Morris or whatever? The... Um, Thin, thin blue line, or no? That wasn't the first one. Oh, uh, Gates Gates of Heaven oh, Gates is of the heaven. first one. Yeah, I, I, you're you're either pre or you're right around the same time. Yeah. So I mean, even yeah, the kind of even the pop documentary is not is not really in vogue yet. So I, I but it, in retrospect, it seems like such a funny statement because yeah, there's definitely a lot of documentary filmmaking, and and to your point, Ethan, the way that they cannot help but um, but interact with. Uh, with their subjects and, and a lot of times very negative and controlling and different ways that you're never really seeing reality. I mean, there's that famous, what Disney documentary movie from the fifties where they're like, everyone thought lemmings just yeah. ran off the cliff because the filmmakers chased them for excitement. <laughs> you know, um, have any of you, I, either of you, any of you, how many of us are here? Have either of you ever seen any of the, uh, Alan Klein documentaries, the, the verite things? I have not. Um, I don't not on my head. Are you talking about like yeah. the um what is he he does the one on the um like the museum and is that natural history is that who who you who I'm thinking of? Oh, I don't know. I, I there's there's uh a guy named Alan Klein did these these series that was very similar to sort of an American family. There's one called I think A Married Couple. Okay. And it all it it feels very linked to sort of the 70s culture of sort of Hey, man, like, let's let it all hang out. Let's be real. Sort of like, you know, strip away all the bullshit of, of, you know, the, the Eisenhower era repression and the sort of hangover of the sixties and these, these people who were willing to put themselves on display being, I don't know, weird naked hippies in the case of that one <laughs> or in an American family opening themselves up to sort of having an open relationship and, and, and pushing against sort of the strictures of the traditional American thing. And what, what Brooks seems to be doing is, is he's the guy who's trying to chase that thing but hasn't found the right subject and is trying to force that kind of openness onto what is actually genuinely an incredibly bland american family the the moment when he the moment when he uh just keeps asking uh various people the moments where he just keeps asking various people like um like is he, is he he keeps asking about uh charles Grodin's character about uh dr Yeager. oh is he likable like, is he likable do you think he's likable <laughs> like as if they just spent 
so much we, we talked about the early part of the movie briefly but like well, we yeah, spent we'll so much it. money so, and these yeah. researchers were so excited to get in the ground floor of this uh big experiment uh, and they conduct they, they they threw so many resources at it with the you know the resources of the studio as well and all of this was happening and then he's getting self-conscious about whether or not yeah. the guy is like a, a good enough subject yeah he uh, i mean yes it, it, he has, point he has charles groden's to... wife yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> he's like he's do you, do you think your do you think your husband comes off as likable <laughs> like separate yourself from the fact that you're married to him like for an audience, yeah, it's so naked uh, right away. What his what his actual intentions Motivation. are, whether or yeah. not they're they're uh, naked to himself, is is a question that the film sort of explores. Because at first, I think he genuinely thinks something is going on, and then there's a switch that flips uh, where he's like, "No, this is you know maybe this isn't real life." Um, but I, I still need this. I need this experiment. Like yeah. I put all my my eggs into this basket. And, like, when everybody else is willing to pull the plug, he's not. Um, the, what, the, yeah, the what do I know is, about reality? I'm a stupid jerk. It's <laughs> a great line. The, the is he likable question that just keeps coming back, I think, is, like, sort of the central, um, like, one of the central pivot points of the movie for me. Yeah. Fred, by the way, it was, uh, I was really, really got my wires crossed. It was uh, Frederick Wiseman. <laughs> Who did like National Gallery that I was? Oh, and and City Hall yeah. about uh, about Boston, Massachusetts. Yes, <laughs> a movie I would not have sat through all of the hours of if it was not about the city that I live in. God, how was that? Like four hours? I got to tell you, here's the thing about the the reason why I forgot it, Ethan. Here's a fun fact about Frederick Wiseman: his movies reviewed really well, and I add them to my cues, and then I don't watch them because they're four hour documentaries on people walking through the. the national gallery and uh yeah i mean i've like like you i have kids you know uh i i i wish i lived in a world where four hours to watch people stare at paintings was a reasonable way to spend my evening well i i actually my my daughter who would have been probably three or four at the time watched a little bit of city hall with me because i just sort of had it going throughout the day yeah and she wandered through the room while it was playing and got this immense sense of civic pride okay. just from knowing someone had made a movie about Boston. And then later she went down the slide in the backyard and she shouted, I'm doing this for Boston. <laughs> and so I thank, I thank Frederick Wiseman for that. And I thank Albert Brooks for the memories. Uh, can I ask you a question, Ethan? Do you think – Yes. Now, you know me pretty well. Can, do you think that me not having the patience to sit through that when I have kids makes me unlikable? <laughs> Unsympathetic um, you know to what? Audience listening to let's, the podcast. Let's, I, I have to go have a meeting with the psychologist, actually. And you know what? We're going to circle back on this really soon because it's very important to me. Great, great. Uh, right, I just think I just think I'm pretty uh, sympathetic as a character. Um, uh, yeah. I. Uh, what else do we have by way of just overview? So it's interesting. One the one thing I I just want to mention. So. It, it is interesting. Next week, our, uh, we, we had a guest who, uh, unfortunately for scheduling, again, won't be able to join us, um, who loves the movie. Uh, and instead, we have a replacement guest, uh, which sounds insulting to say, but it's just an accurate description of what happened, uh, who has never seen Lost in America. But, uh, Rick Kelly was very excited to see Lost Rick in America. Rick Kelly. The, sorry. Sorry. Hold on. The great Rick Kelly. The great Rick Kelly. Yeah, it's a you know it's a replacement, but it's not a. I'm not saying it's a downgrade or an upgrade. Two great people. 
It's uh, a side grade. It's a side, side grade. It's just a grade. Yeah. All right? It's just a grade. Um, but he, he'd never seen Lost in America. Interesting, again, that, that this this was the first time you had seen real life for this for this podcast as well. So um, it's it's I do find that, you know, I, I discovered this probably like 10 years ago and immediately just fell in love with it. Um, I just, you know, I thought it was like one of the funniest fucking things I'd ever seen. It, was, it felt like a secret movie because I had watched Lost in America and other Brooks movies. And this just felt like a in, insane revelation. Peter, this was also your first time watching this. And now you've watched it after uh, seeing Modern Romance and Defending Your Life. Uh, before we get into like scenes and the plot and funny parts and everything else, like what was what's you're 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 75% of the way through our your Brooks journey. Like what's what where are you at right now with him? Uh, his movies are good. Great. <laughs> um no I, I actually am really really happy with the order you chose, which is non-chronological, um, because starting with Modern Romance and having it be this cynical, acerbic movie that's just, like, so mean, like, but in a way that, like, you, I, like, couldn't look away, but I also couldn't watch towards the end. Uh, it was one of those <laughs> things where I, like, was peeking between my fingers, like I was watching an axe murder. Um, the... Starting with the cynical, mean one uh, that is also quite darkly funny, um, yep. and then going to one that's like lighthearted and sweet, and it's sort of a nice fantasy, and then getting uh, taking a step back and and finding something that kind of cuts the difference, uh, I think is the right way to approach these films because um, <laughs> Albert Brooks is is all of those complexities and. Uh, in this movie in particular, you get all those complexities. You get why his character, people would find him charming at first, but eventually, like, they would sort of wear on him and people would sort of figure him out. And the fact that, like, uh, even if uh, the family was, like, totally comfortable with the cameras and the studio was completely behind him and... Um, I don't know. The, the 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 Science Institute, the National Institute was uh comfortable with all the choices he was making. Let's say all those 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 factors were sort of stable and comfortable. Um nobody would want to live with him and be in his presence for a year. And the fact <laughs> that this burns out in like a month and a half or something. Um, yeah, it's 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 90 days or so. I mean, the fir- one of the geniuses is like it the first dinner is a complete fucking mess and it never really gets better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was gonna say is the fact that he like I was just saying, the fact that he decides that a big band and singing a original song about how exciting this experiment is for the town with serious uh serious researchers of anthrop- anthropology and human psychology sitting in the room. Um he decides that a big band presentation telling the town how great this experiment is going to be and all the all the pomp and circumstance that he has to have these like, oh, we're going to have this grand reunion and we're going to give you a limo from the airport. Like he immediately throws out any sort of anthropological um, 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 basis uh, for the uh, quote unquote experiment. Yeah, he gets all the Merv Griffith band that they could afford to fly out. Yeah, and uh, through these three movies, I feel like I get the sense of Albert Brooks really well. Uh, as a person, if these are, if the sort of, um, I, I get the sense as that a I, persona. I, I get his persona very yeah. well, um, because it is sort of, um, him quote unquote, as we've, we've discussed previously, it is sort of him telling on himself and telling on his generation and talking about the things that, that are kind of ugly at times, um, and are, are uncomfortable to discuss, but, 
uh, are truly necessary to talk about to make these movies have any sort of bite. Because well, uh, I want to jump back to something Ethan said when you were talking about. It's like I didn't really – Ethan, defending your life didn't really click with you at a certain point in your life. One of the reasons I put these movies off is because the concept of – middle-aged ennui or, uh, you know, a filmmaker in L.A. being, um, you know, sad about romance and is and is his career going in the right, right, right direction. And, like, just sort, sort of conceptually, none of these movies sounded that interesting to me when I was in my um, burgeoning, criterion-devouring sort of filmy phase. So I never watched any of them because it wasn't just – it just wasn't interesting to me as a concept. But now I'm older, I've had more experiences, and I've seen, like, more – frankly, more pathetic sides of myself. Um, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, these movies are clicking with me and resonating with me in a way that, like, I find deeply funny but also, like, a little shameful. And that's why I'm having these these sort of deep reactions to them. I do think um, – I mentioned this. I'm really excited to revisit Lost in America because I saw Lost in America a couple times, but I probably haven't seen it in 15 years. So, we're talking like, you know, late teens, early 20s. And I really liked Lost in America. But being 38, I think Lost in America is going to come off a little differently to me. And I'm excited because it really is – you know, the, you're right. Like that kind of like recognizing the most pathetic sides of yourself is something that Albert Brooks movies do really well. Yeah. So the the thing for me about Lost in America is I, I went into it with a little bit of trepidation after Modern Romance because, as I mentioned, that is a movie about Albert Brooks being the world's biggest problem, yeah. as yeah. is this. And with <laughs> that, I won't, I won't say much, but I do really appreciate with that movie how he uses the other character. It's, it's really very much a two-hander. Yes. And it, it prevents it from being just another iteration. It feels, for at least a little while, like it is going to be another movie about the world's biggest problem, man. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little more nuanced than that. And I really do. I like that about it. Yeah. I mean, his characters in lot at some point, I think he decided, like, maybe I, I shouldn't only play characters that belong in jail. And, like, <laughs> even in an abolish the police situation and you, you know, I think most of the the hardest hardest of lefties would still look at his character in modern romance and go, he, he definitely belongs away from people i mean canonically in real life it, presumably the next day he is in jail yeah uh, oh it really yeah definitely i mean you never know the, these hollywood lawyers um mm. as, as he uh, and his relationship with the studio is clearly very strong by the end of this i picture. know and the national institute yes i forget did they ever say it's it's the joke is that they're it's not of anything right it's just the national institute of human behavior oh, or that's whatever right. okay my. Okay. Okay. Human. Okay. He just calls. You it got the that Institute wrong, and so now some, it's my I show. It's so. your show. You went. Do you want to throw us to break? Since it's your show now. Well, I that, love hold on. Pretend, to watch the break. On. You can do that, but let's do this as an exercise. Let's pretend. Just visualize. There's two two circles. <laughs> one okay. says host, and one says guest. And for this exercise, as you. Uh, throw to break. I am in the guest part and you are in the host section. Go ahead. You have done a terrible job this whole episode and I am embarrassed that you're on my show and we have to take a break so that I can sort out my feelings about whether we're coming back at all. How do I hit you on the microphone here? Oh, no, don't. Okay. Okay.
I believe you are telling us what happens in real life. Yeah. Which I want to underline is all real. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's called real life. A movie wouldn't lie to you. I mean, Albert Brooks says it 50 times, and I can tell you what. Albert Brooks does not gaslight people in this movie. <laughs> Could you describe what he's doing as gaslighting? I I would not, and you shouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's he's perhaps so deluded himself, he doesn't have the um, uh, sort of uh, intellectual... Uh, standing to gaslight. Uh, I think it's, it's like of, it's like, it's like intellectual most, chaosing. It's like it's like the most. It's like where you feel bad for the gaslighter a little bit. It's like so pathetic. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but then it's you're also like a lot of times the gaslighting involves Charles Grodin, who's also an extraordinarily pathetic man in this movie. So like you have two people. The the we'll we'll get to it. But the the scene where Charles Grodin is asking Albert Brooks to take the horse murder out of the film <laughs> is like t- two people two the most pathetic example of manipulation where neither of them have any standing with the other person and just also seem like uh, like desperate to a point of pity to, for both of them. It is it's one of my favorite scenes maybe in any movie because you're like, I don't know who I'm rooting for here. They're both so sad and wrong. <laughs> it really it's, – it's like the heat diner scene. Yes. But for, for guys who their whole shtick is being horrible assholes trying to convince themselves and everyone else that they are not horrible assholes. <laughs> yeah. that, that is a perfect way to describe it. So, Peter, what happens in real life? Yeah, it's like it, it's like um, a more uh, beta male version of the diner scene in Thief. Then I guess. <laughs> yeah, what's what's after beta? This is like theta. <laughs> I don't know, but if you so- call someone like a Delta man, they sa- sounds kind of cool, right? Sigma male. Sigma male. <laughs> um. So, uh, real life. Albert Brooks's real life. It opens with a. Uh, not just a presentation to us as audience members, but to uh, a uh, town, uh, basically uh, setting up the premise of the film, uh, but also the experiment that they're all going to be sort of observers and maybe even casual participants in, which is <clears throat> that uh, Albert Brooks and with the uh, help of a uh, science institute uh, alongside a uh, film studio, are going to be filming both discreetly and uh, overtly uh, a uh, tradition in quotes, a a sort of traditional American family. And so he's explaining this concept. It's, it's a family called the Jaegers. It's, it's a fairly standard nuclear family. You know, Um, there's a uh, father who's the primary breadwinner and he's a veteran, a veteran, (laughs) veterinarian. I don't know. I mean, he might be a veteran. Yeah. (laughs) It's the the age. Yeah. It's 79. Maybe the Korean war wasn't that long ago. He looks like he's in his (laughs) forties. We lost a lot of good boys over there, you know? Yeah. Maybe he got some um, credits for veterinary school uh, for like treating horses. Oh no. He was part of operation Dumbo drop. Yeah. Are you sure? I mean, <laughs> there's got to be vet vets, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they send dogs to war. Haven't you heard yeah. of the expression, let loose the dogs of war? Yeah, those are literal dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sometimes they're homies. Stretch it, keep stretching. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh he is a Ethan's uh, like hey i for, for the love of christ guys at one point i'd like to be able to promote this on my twitter without <laughs> embarrassment can we <laughs> so uh no I, I, no that's not what i'm thinking <laughs> keep stretching about vet vets <laughs> uh yeah he's a vet squared um so he served uh on operation dumbo drop and uh well not not really like served so much as um after the operation was over he accidentally euthanized like the elephant from it would be great if dumbo, he actually maybe? eventually starred in a um like a this is perfect for the era too like a a disney family live action movie where he gets turned into a car mm-hmm and he becomes the Corvette Vet Vet. <laughs> or abbreviated. You, you vet. took me up on stretching the Vet Vet thing. Oh. <laughs> or, or abbreviated the Vet Vet Vet. Uh, yeah, and if that Corvette happened only, to look Only like on a the, full moon. And if Otherwise, that Corvette happened to look like Slave One uh, from Star Wars, it'd be a Fet Vet Vet Vet. Oh, yeah. Oh, if he played a Fet Vet Vet Vet? Mm-hmm. It's a good thing this is not an interesting movie or anything, so we can just go all in on the vet, vet, vet. You told us, Ethan. We're very suggestible. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, yes, they're explaining the concept. You're still in the host circle. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Only – actually, I shouldn't let Aaron interrupt me. Only Ethan can interrupt me. Only Ethan and And God. And I love to watch. (laughs) Um, so Albert Brooks uh, it, it sort of explains uh, all of this uh, with a big jazz number with a big band, um, and uh, yeah, the experiment is launched, and we do a time <clears throat> we do a time jump back to explain all the various technology that's going to be involved. There's uh, wall cameras that will sort of covertly film them, uh, the family as they're, they're they go about their normal life. Um, we go through the selection process for the family. Um, we see, oh yeah, sorry, while we're talking about cameras, um, there's a, a device called a uh, Etnauer, um, which is a head camera that requires, it, it, it's like a space helmet. Yeah. But it requires the... <laughs> then he the, puts, puts the hands in. <laughs> it requires the photographer, because it's so heavy, to uh, stick their hands into the helmet and hold it up so that it doesn't hurt their neck. <laughs> Six were made. Five worked. We have four of them. <laughs> and what's what's kind of genius about the placement of that next to the first part is you already know this guy's a joke, and you're just watching all the money and resources being thrown at his joke experiment. That camera well, bit never stops paying off. It's never it's perfect. It, there's a it's moment, incredible. There's a moment where, but, where there's a moment where something very sad is happening, and then someone walks into frame with that at an hour, <laughs> and I lost my shit. There's a, there's a scene where it's after um, it's after Ted quits, right? And you're seeing it from like a diagonal angle, him sitting at the table alone and staring off, you know, into the side. And then one of the Etnauer guys comes up and sits on a chair so that if we were seeing that angle, it would be like an office, you know, talking to the camera. And he just doesn't pause and starts talking about his feelings <laughs> to the guy that just sat down on the chair while we're seeing it from a separate Etnauer angle. It is the funniest fucking thing in the entire world. And again, speaks to the insanity of all of these like mockumentary type shows of like, what would have, what would be occurring for that to happen? And you just see it all in this one shot of like the, the fight, 
The doctor quit. He leaves. And then another guy walks into frame, sits down in front of him. And Albert Brooks, without moving, just starts talking about what just how, how what just happened, what it, how it made him feel. It's, it's perfect. It is as is the gag that I I, I truly love the repeating uh, gag that that Brooks can't stop bragging about how expensive everything he's doing <laughs> oh, is. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's not just that they are bleeding them dry, but they are they are trying to jack up the price of this thing as much as possible because that is obviously the greatest status symbol. Yeah, he's that in the he's amount like of someone who only won't, he's like a producer who won't stop talking about production value. Yeah. Um, like that's that's his goal is is to get the most money on screen. <laughs> yeah, or just the like again, it is it's all about money or quantity over quality because that you know it's a Hollywood like the bigger the better the more the uh, is better. I love like if we converted those number of tests to eggs, it would be enough eggs to feed everyone <laughs> in St. Louis for two years on a two egg per week diet. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many fantastic throwaway jokes in this, um, but the the best one is when they're selecting the families. They run them through a series of tests. One of them is very funny because they scan the face to make sure that it has the <laughs> right amount of charm. Charisma. Not charm. Charisma yeah. is yeah. the right amount of charisma. Um, and they reject the computer is just automatically rejecting them after scanning them into this like <laughs> primitive thing that turns their their whole face into like an unflattering egghead. And then the message to pick up your shoes at the desk as the kicker really gets me. <laughs> and they get they get um they get letters when the families are dismissed. They get letters basically saying like <laughs> like it's like they're form letters, yeah. Yeah, you're not you're you're not going to be in this experiment like the language is very funny and then it immediately goes into like a promotional offer. <laughs> Like in the second paragraph, <laughs> we 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 kind of we joked about it uh, in the context of, of the host guest switch. But the first test is, um, or one of the first tests is, uh, like a parent and a child switch, switching places <laughs> hypothetically to get them. No, the first one of those we see the son immediately go for his belt to hit the kid, and then the dad reacts by. Uh, hitting the kid for being in, or threatening to hit the kid for insolence, and Albert Brooks goes, "Never mind, we're out." And which is a funny enough joke as it stands, but the fact that right after that he says, uh, "23, 23 families dropped out on the basis of this test, saving the institute untold thousands of dollars." <laughs> like just the act that that the 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 level of dysfunction in seventies era's family was so much that. Uh, 23 of like a hundred some families just by standing in separate circles and pretending to be the other person for five minutes was enough for them to go we, we can't do this we need to get out of this situation <laughs> it's fantastic and then they narrow them down to two families um, one of them contains Charles Grodin so you know that's going to be the winning family um, but it's two <laughs> families that are similarly sort of just like the right amount of boring. Like, they're almost identical families. Um, they make the, they have the same sort of, like, absolutely um, pointless small talk. Um, that's just sort of the thing you do to fill up silence. Like, the, 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 yaw, the mawing silence of a room and that, uh, like, middle class people just can't help but, f like, fill. Like, all people have that feeling, that, like, discomfort. But, like, that specific type of, like, m middle class, like, um, like... It's 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 like a step just a step beyond how's the weather. 
Um, yeah. Is is it's just because they so make lovely. them sit for two hours. That's the final test, and it's the thing that we love to laugh at. But I do the same shit when I'm in I waiting rooms, yeah. and it's like too quiet, and they don't have like if they literally if they don't have like waiting room music, I I feel uncomfortable, and I feel like I have to like say something. Like it happens to all of us. Um, it's fantastic. Um, so uh, the families are selected, and then there's a they send the family off to Hawaii while they set um, up. So that they can not only bug their house and, and get that all set up, but also um, Albert Brooks moves in across the street. And spends a decent amount of, the, or, you know, the idea of the documentary film bragging to the cameras that this is his first time as a homeowner. That does seem to be just a, a massive subtext of this whole thing is that he just wants to have a house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when yeah, because I mean, he, we we see uh, him uh, antiquing a, a end table. Yeah, that all of the the him talking about how he selected a certain style for the kitchen and then a certain style for the bedroom, and he's just basically building out this like epic bachelor pad on Studio Dollar. Um, well, and then the most like, important thing. Hold on, actually, I think this is a really good uh, important point that we I don't think we've mentioned yet. It is important to note that this movie ends with end text that indicates that this is the movie that was ultimately released in the fictional world that Albert Brooks made, which I think is important for a metatextual thing because in this the is final not a found cu- footage movie, it's not a found footage in the final cut of the film that Albert Brooks or the studio horror, you have to assume Albert Brooks released. It has him bragging about buying a house. And and decorating an end table or painting an end well, table. Well, just the fact that it's narrated throughout by him indicates that it. <laughs> that you, yeah, he did. He, he yeah, well, yeah, he may have done it from behind bars, I guess. But I mean, in its way, this is as dense as like Synecdoche, New York, in terms of like the building of text and meta text and everything call. folding in on itself. Yeah, which which again makes I I do think like there's we'll we'll talk about the horse scene, but when Charles Grode makes him promise that he'll show other. Other scenes of him being a good vet and saving of him animals, saving of cats and dogs. cats and dogs, and we know because we're watching the film that is released in this in this metatextual universe that there is no other scenes of him um, being a vet, a good vet or otherwise. <laughs> like it's an extra layer of funny. We know that he promised to do that, and we are not seeing that at any point. And that that he chooses to include the sequence of. <clears throat> of Charles Grodin trying to not bribe him. He's not offering him anything, but like try to like appeal to him. You know, like you might ruin my life being. when you leave. Um, uh, and, and people Albert- get very sensitive about animals. Like one, one person just had a vet break their dog's leg and they never went back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I want to I want to note something about the meta-ness that like is is just sort of dawning on me now is that like I keep we keep pinning all this on Albert Brooks like again and again um the studio mostly gets off with clean hands in this movie I think the scientists um are one of the scientists uh Ted uh is is I think keeps mostly clean hands because he enters the he keeps trying to give the experiment a chance until he just literally can't he has to bail out and then he's just like I need to raise a red flag this family's being harmed the other scientist and people from the institute hold on way longer with almost no <laughs> no concerns voiced until they finally are like are right, pulling the plug until and the news articles start about news articles start yes it because what it becomes a PR nightmare they plot 
the Science Institute is also as responsible for this because they're not they're not um, actually taking into account that their observations of this and they're providing equipment and they're <clears throat> providing researchers and um, they're allowing this to continue like well beyond when it should continue. Um, they're ju- they're like using this as like a a PR opportunity or a way to get like flashy research to get themselves more grant money or whatever, right? That to, to raise their their um, status as a as an institute, right? <clears throat> uh, maybe uh, you know impress some uh, senator um, to give them more money, um, whatever whatever their their goals may be. Uh, it's what researchers have to do. They have to occasionally have like a big flashy study that catches people's attention. Um, so. Uh, they should have pulled the plug way the fuck earlier. And they also should have realized that being this close to the family and not setting any sort of boundaries and like they ever actually never really set the ground rules, except for that the family has to stay in the house and listen to Albert Brooks and listen to Albert Brooks. They really never set those ground rules and they have guys walking around with bug heads, like they're alien bugs, like, and pretending as if that's not going to have an impact well, Ted, Ted's the one that kind of raises that. Um, so, yeah. So, there's, there's essentially two scientists that are almost embedded with him. Ted immediately is annoyed with the, um, with the, with the band and everything else and goes, this is supposed to be a scientific work and you're, you're, you're turning into a production. Albert Brooks is like, well, it is. It's, it's a movie and a scientific marvel, right? Um, and, they, they, yeah, they, they, they kind of have that throughout until Ted quits. But Ted is kind of like revealed as a little bit of a, of a, of a jerk too, because he immediately writes like a, like thirty days later he has a book coming out, which is not even the other scientist I think or someone is either one of the scientists or like one of the producers goes like, yeah, I mean, you, how can you write a book like as a scientist thirty days later and release it? Like that's not that's not a good case study either to be releasing to the public that's an attempt to exploit a situation so it does feel like effectively no one comes off good even the person who theoretically quit because uh because the 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 way that they were conducting the research wasn't correct and he that is your point maybe my, 60 days. yeah it's maybe my favorite beat in the whole movie is just that the the theoretically upstanding principled guy walks off and immediately takes the the sort of immediate cash in is is, is such such a dark and cynical joke but so so goddamn and then the way albert brooks the way albert brooks is so uh pissed off and angry at the news crews with like a a a sort of um extra level of for for exploiting the family for exploiting the family when like his entire goal has been to exploit the family and he's constantly so yeah i guess it kind of pushes back towards the synopsis but like kind of um he's he's kind of finding opportunities to manipulate the family from the beginning the family is incredibly stressed out by all of this um the mother is uh deeply uncomfortable with the setup even though you know we can't quite tell but it seems like it was charles groden's idea and it probably would have made them some money to participate in this um so uh you know he didn't really think ahead on how this would affect the family's life and not having any privacy and the fact that like the ground rules are just so un they're they're not reasonable um 
the uh, and then he immediately like almost like the wife starts to form an infatuation with him, and he like shuts it down, but in a way that lets him like stoke his own ego. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he keeps trying to find times to like inter- like he's like oh yeah I'd love to go to the gynecologist with you I'd love to go to the I'd love to go to uh, work and watch you operate on a horse I'd love to do this and this and he keeps kind of encouraging uh, Doctor Yeager to um to just like kind of chase what would be good scenes as opposed to what would be good for his family or he keeps the fact that he's encouraging him to do anything obviously is a violation of like good experiment rules like the idea of an anthropologist are supposed to be sort of like flies on the wall as best as they can and then they're supposed to if they at the times when they're they do have to engage with their um their their study subjects um to try and like kind of blend in and allow them to like return back to normal normal behavior because obviously you can't be a fly on the wall and not let yeah like one it's impossible one he i mean so immediately it's like you know they're fighting about whether to remove an iud and like you know they're not getting along she's uh the, the wife is sick she leaves uh to go to her sisters and then like this culminates in like basically like 20 days of no one really getting along and albert brooks like you said doing the scene with this horse scene where uh, Charles Grodin, you know, has to operate on a horse and he wants the cameras in there too, because he's going to save this horse and it's going to look good. But instead he's so distracted by the cameras that he gives double dose of the sedative uh, in possibly like, I'm not a, like I, I, Peter and I've been pretty clear that it's not like we, we, we get annoyed at like, does the dog die and killing animals? This may be one of the few times that an animal is killed for humor that it really works well. <laughs> it's, very, it's very, very, very funny just because like when, when he realizes he's giving a double dose and there's nothing he can do, just the way Charles Grown is like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, that's too much. That's too much. That's too much. Oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> like he just just in that Charles Grodin way. The horse dies. They have that confrontation about, like, can you please not put it in the movie? And Albert Brooks is saying, oh, well, you know, let's just for now, just think of it like we're not going to put it in the movie. Like, the, the again, the most pathetic attempt to for Charles Grodin to manipulate Al, Al, Albert Brooks uh, and Albert Brooks to not like to to lie to him without ever lying to him, probably for some legal reasons. And then the 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 stinger on that is also fucking hilarious. Where the where the guy who owns the horse comes there, and how does he says? I'm sorry, the horse. We um, lost him. We lost him. <laughs> Shen goes, Don't you, aren't you supposed to have people that's looking taking care of the animals? All right, well let's go find them. <laughs> just like and then leaves Charles Grodin staring at the camera because now he has to tell him again that the horse died. It is it's so good. So like okay, comedy. okay. Sorry, go on. Wait, I just I want to. I feel like I need to grind things to a halt for a second. Yeah, grind. I feel like yeah. Charles Grodin is so underused in this movie, and I I just feel like I need to harsh the buzz for just a second and say <sighs> I am a little circle. I know. I'm a little disappointed by I look, I'm a huge fan of Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid, yeah. which I think is just a foundational text. Right. And I was looking for more of that Groden in this movie. And I feel like at a certain point, Brooks just sort of loses interest in the family a little bit and loses interest in Groden and gets more into the drama between himself and the the institute and the studio. And I I just 
I will agree with Roger Ebert again, not thinking this is a one star movie, which is very harsh. <laughs> But in just wishing that there was more yeah, meat on that bone. Yeah, he just walked out of bone. the Night of the Living Dead that day. He had a rough. Oh, my God. Right. You know, and, and unimpeachable uh, mind, obviously. Um, I, I I felt like there was more more to be drawn out of the Jaegers that was just, just sort of like left on the plate a little bit or left on the table a little bit. And I just needed to get that on the record, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Charles Groton is... I would say that he's so, – I mean, he is good in this movie. I think, like, as a career, he was underutilized, right? Like, people have a lot of affection for Charles Grodin because of stuff like um, like this movie, like uh, Midnight Run, like Clifford. Um, Beethoven. Beethoven and stuff like that. Um, or, or, yeah, or The Heartbreak Kid. Um, but, like, you know, he wasn't in that much. He had a very odd career. And he does – he does kind of slink into the background. And you're right. The last 20 minutes of this movie is like the movie getting shut it, shut down. And Albert Brooks truly, while he was always kind of making it about himself, like the last 20 minutes of this movie is him uh, actively making the movie about himself. Which, again, is the movie that we all ended up seeing and got released because of the Albert Brooks in this movie, which is extra funny. Um, but I, I agree. Like... I, if, if your complaint is that I would have liked to see more scenes like this horse scene with Charles Grodin, you got no complaints for me, Bob. Uh, okay. I, I don't think it takes away from the movie, but yeah, I would have, I mean, every scene that Charles Grodin in is, is in is one of the best moments of the movie. Yeah. So, and my, my difference of opinion is I do complain about that. So I, I, I'm with you, Ethan, and there's absolutely, like, no way to, like, mathematically parse that. But, like, <clears throat> obviously we can all agree that the point of the movie is that the movie gets taken away from the family and that, like, he eventually becomes – Charles, uh, uh, Dr. Yeager eventually becomes a sort of ineffectual presence. And, like, it would be kind of against the purposes of the movie if that character let's, – let's pretend it's not Charles Grodin. Like, just that character were um, any bigger presence in the movie than that. Um, we can at least agree that, like, the point of the movie is that the, it's getting taken away from the family. The family doesn't really enter the movie until, like, 20, 25 minutes in. Um, that's fair, yeah. That's, I, I, I do think it lends the movie a very odd shape that that such a huge chunk of it is used almost sporadically. But, yeah, it, you know what? Maybe if it was entirely unknowns being in those roles, yeah. it, would, it would hit differently. Yeah. Though, okay, so – it being unknowns is hard because like most of the best jokes in this movie are the little Charles Grodin moments where he's sort of nervously smiling at the camera as he like really wants to like yell at his wife or his kids. But <laughs> yeah. he does. Why don't you go take your dinner and just like eat it in your room while you watch TV? Why does he have to eat in his room? Oh, you know. <laughs> that dinner scene. I just want them to know this is why this is not how we usually talk. Yes. Yeah. And, okay. So like I, I will say there's. I was I was expecting a few more tr big Charles Grodin moments where he just like tears somebody down or acts acts uh you know uh, uh completely owns a moment right like completely uh, stomps somebody uh, verbally. Yeah. I was expecting that version of Charles Grodin to pop up at least once in the movie and was a little disappointed that there wasn't more of that sort of behavior. But I think I think the bias. That you and I, I'm not even saying it's an unfair bias, but the bias that you and I and, and Aaron, I, I think, are kind of carrying is that Charles Grodin just passed away and we're like, 
hungry for more of his talent. And as Aaron pointed out, like, he was somebody that was like, yeah, like, while he had in it, uh, unimpeachable roles. Like, I I, wa- I finally watched Midnight Run about a year ago. Oh, it's so good. And I was like, why wasn't he in everything? And then I was like, oh, well, yeah, he wasn't. They immediately did find a role for him. It was in a movie about a big dog. And the big dog gets into a lot of mischief. He uh, is. I mean, he gets I, I don't know if the seen dog. Him. I don't know if you've seen Beethoven recently, but I did watch it with my kids a couple years ago. And, I mean, Beethoven is not a good movie, but he is so good in that movie. Yeah, it is. It is Occasionally, when you catch these 80s family comedy movies, you're like, oh, that's why this movie worked as a family comedy. Because, like, the kids liked the dog chaos and the parents thought, you know, Charles Grodin was, was crazy. Yeah. But, yeah. So, my point is that, like, we're also all operating with Charles Grodin's death being like pretty recent um, and like sort of hanging over our head is like, I want more, I want more Charles Grodin, the, the, the good Charles Grodin. And um, we did, we, did we, there's just not that much of it out there. Yeah. And so like, it's, 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 I'm both like a little annoyed that Albert Brooks didn't more properly weaponize him in this, but also like if he had, the choices are either he weaponizes him more and then the movie doesn't actually work the way it's supposed to work. Because if he was a true Charles Grodin figure, I don't think the ending would sing the way it does sing, which is that he's just sort of like he, but he's just like I mean, he, he's literally man. hiding in the closet, which, yeah. which does match his character. And Albert Brooks just kind of takes center stage to fight uh, ostensibly for the reality of the family as reality slips further and further away if it ever existed in the first place. He kind of, yeah, the, the, the Grodin figure has to kind of disappear into the background, um, un- unfortunately. Um, but, like, I don't know if that's necessarily something I register on the film's part or if I'm just like, man, I just need to watch Heartbreak Kid again. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you hear us talk about Charles Grodin, you want more Grodes, uh, would highly recommend uh, Heartbreak Kid and would also recommend a time machine back when you could rent that on DVD from Netflix in 2001. Uh, because if not, I don't know how you're watching it. Yeah. Oh, and then uh, what was I going to say is uh, you could go on YouTube and watch the Charles Grodin show. Uh, yeah. So at the end of the movie, uh, after – so actually after the so – after the horse death, uh, his wife's uh, Charles Grodin's wife's mom dies, and he spends most of the funeral talking about the horse. Which you know, uh, my wife's mom hasn't died, and I've never killed a horse in surgery. But I, I can like pick, put myself in that situation and realize uh, the hypothetical faux pas I would be committing there. It's because I'm 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 an empathetic person. You're so empathetic. Well, yeah, so as I, an empath. As an empath, I could see why that would be a bad thing to do. You know what? Why don't you just do it? Well, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm saying I wouldn't do that. As an empath also, I feel bad that you can't do the thing you want to do. Well, I've never killed a horse. I mean, I've tried. <laughs> they're very – they're big bees and I don't have the uh, access to the drugs – that Charles Charles Grote, a weak, non-physically intimidating man, had access to the type of scientific breakthroughs and drugs that could kill a horse. I don't have access to that. Yeah, with five percent of something. Well, yeah, I don't have. I don't have access. I don't even know what five percent of the horse's body weight is. That here's the, here, here's the sad irony compared to oxygen. 
I don't have access to 2.5% of it, which as far as I can tell would have been fine. <laughs> Let alone uh, the 5% that would finally, you know, scratch that off my bucket list to kill that horse. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you want the horse to kick the bucket. I'd love it. Yeah, got it. <laughs> um, but not... Never mind. Um, so yeah, uh, Charles Grodin kills a horse, of course, of course. And of course. Uh, as we're heading towards sort of the end of the movie, um, <clears throat> the experiment becomes more and more compromised as like Charles Grodin. T- Ted publishes his his articles. The local news is like there's brainwashing and abuse going on here. Uh, and at the same I'll- time, the, the the wife's mother or grandmother dies, and we're, Charles we're Grodin is falling that. into a depression about, about the whole uh, horse murder thing and the fact that he's pretty Just sure his career over yeah um and then uh yeah so they're kind of falling into depression as as they're coming out of the depression uh because of bribes because of bribes and gifts from albert brooks yes and the power of the montage and the power of the montage uh show the french what a montage is lovely sequence with like slow-mo shots of ice cream being poured and them going down uh roller at one zoo matching shirts like yeah it's clear it is it is it is clear that albert brooks at this point is just like this movie isn't gonna work unless they're happy um at some point like they need to come out of the depression that's how you know that's how narratives work in narratives, yeah. you know, you come out, you go into a depression, and then you come out of it, and then everything's normal again. It's and he's it, because in real life, you know, sometimes people, you know, maybe in real life, people, uh, you know, stay in depressive moods for a long time, and marriages fall apart. But yeah, not I mean, in his real quote, life, his the quote, movie. his voice, his voiceover is: "These people have been depressed long enough." <laughs> it's so which good. is to again drag things back to an American family parentheses nineteen seventy three is kind of the inverse of what the documentarian was doing there where he was accused of uh constantly stoking their unhappiness and leading them to this uh annihilation of the family and was for his own part accused of of putting his thumb on the scale and never made another movie again he did win a Nobel prize and an academy award he did not he won uh a a life of uh ignominious uh uncertainty and and anonymity and other words that end with anonymity um uh, but so it's it is itty bitty it is fascinating that that brooks's conception is that the movie needs to be sympathetic above all while he himself is the least sympathetic person ever <laughs> that's to interesting. Live. i wonder if that's like one of those things that like contemporary audiences who were cool and hip and get it would have known that like that's why he was so focused on making them happy was because of because, I mean, uh, it was six years after the PBS documentary. So I'm assuming all those things you mentioned that, like, had come out in the news or were – the director of that was criticized for was, like, well aware to anyone that would be aware of that documentary. Yeah. I mean, this thing was a sensation. I mean, they yeah. they were all over. They went on the Dick Cavett show to relitigate the entire thing. They were on all of the different talk shows. Like I say, it's, it is hard for me to sort of untangle them at this point. Since yeah. Brooks is so clearly drafting off it, that's in, that's yeah. interesting because that that actually makes like a like for for almost his own reputational purposes why he's so like path pathologically committed to making sure they don't end up depressed. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, no. And if it seems it seems like maybe you know that seems like too specific of a reference um, as we we come back to in the show a lot. Uh, monoculture used to be more of a thing. 
and there were less less channels people talked about things the more commonly there were less things less things to talk about within the entertainment space there obviously were as many things to talk about outside that space but within the entertainment space there was um there were just less things to talk about um so, Imagine yeah. if there was a 12-hour documentary on PBS today that became a cultural flashpoint. I Hold on. I have to I, – I, I, I know this is like maybe boring for the audience at this point, but how many viewers did the American family get? Because I, I love – I'm going to wrap up the plot. You looked at it. And the answer 10 is – 10 million viewers and considerable controversy. <laughs> all of the viewers. 10 million viewers adjusted for people today that is 400 million people <laughs> i mean especially um, with this inflation without with this inflation um, i mean as far as i know from reading and the inflation is bad well people are getting bigger so you can inflate number of people too um, oh yeah they're definitely getting tall <laughs> yeah i mean have you ever been in like a 1920s apartment you know how many high fives i have to jump up to get um <laughs> <laughs> so so at the end of this, yeah, Albert Brooks, they, they're kind of shutting him down. He's losing support from the Institute. He's losing support from the studio. And he decides that should have never done reality. What does he know? He's a showbiz stupid jerk. He shouldn't do reality. So he's thinking of big ways that movies have ended, like uh, getting a shark from the aquarium to kill the family. All while putting on a clown suit that he used at one point to try to make the family less depressed. Uh, and settles on a fire being a really good, exciting ending to the movie and walks in while they're discussing like settlement and burns down the house yeah uh yeah yeah so uh the film ends with uh you know the the house actually burning down and and him uh, running around outside like a maniac and uh you know closing closing credits that indicate as aaron said earlier that the uh movie did come out um this is not a found footage movie this is <laughs> they have a 1-800 the that- <laughs> number hold on they have a 1-800 number for historians yes who have thoughts about how historical this movie was and the impact <laughs> of it to call them. I just realized I just said this isn't a found footage movie. However, were this a horror movie, it would end the exact same way. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Except for, I mean, you know, what's obviously that, the family would have been like, tied um, up inside What's that the movie house. on uh, Netflix? Like Creep? The, uh, Creep? Creep, yeah. This is, I mean, this this is like this a comedy drama version of Creep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, like we were kind of touching on little moments as we went and I keep missing little moments because like, um, because, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a movie, it's a comedy movie. It's filled with jokes, but the, the clown moment, uh, is just so fantastic. He comes in the tour and he's trying to like do a little rhymes and cheer the kids up, but the kids aren't home. So he just has to talk. (laughs) He just has to talk to the parents. He was just sitting on the couch <laughs> trying to have a normal conversation, but he's in like full clown regalia. Um, oh, so good. It's so good. And then during the moment when the, yeah, and you mentioned that like it comes back during the moment when like everything is collapsing, he, he overcommitted and he was like, yeah, I'm supposed to do like a charity event for like a children's hospital or something. <laughs> so as he's spiraling, he's putting on a clown outfit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so good. There's there's three moments I want to call out that we didn't get to um, that are so good. Uh, we mentioned the song. What we didn't mention is that the entire song is him kissing the town's ass mm-hmm. about how great the town is. It reminds how me of sunny and wonderful. 
It's they, so good. I mean, obviously, Music Man has, has deeper roots than that, but, like, it reminds me of the monorail song from The Simpsons. Yeah. Like, because he literally is, like, presenting in front of the whole town, like, the Music Man. He's just being like, I'm going to bring you a new sensation. A little bit of Hollywood is coming to your little podunk town of Phoenix, Arizona. Well, I think it's actually intentional because yeah. he names one of the psychologists Howard Hill, which uh-huh. sounds a lot like Harold Hill, which is the name of The Music Man from I the film thought. The Music Man. Yeah. Well, I did because it's when he says Howard, it sounds a lot like he's saying Harold. And so I was like, oh, he named the character after, oh, never mind. <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm assuming that it is at least halfway intentional. Yeah, I mean, it, d- definitely, it definitely fits that that well uh another joke we didn't get to is that he has this whole scene introducing all of the all of uh to the family all of the people who will be working on the movie uh like the gaffer and the lighting people and ever all like the entire union and then notes that because of the camera system and how and it's a documentary they actually won't be needing any of these people but you know where <laughs> brooks very pro-union so he's like, so they'll be living in this town. You'll see them around town. They will. You will not see them again uh, in capacity of this movie until the premiere. And then he dismisses everybody, which is a very funny joke. Yeah, it's it's, it's a super funny gag. Uh, I imagine most of those are actual people that worked on the movie just to save money. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, the other thing, the last joke I just want to mention because I don't want to miss all the funny call out stuff is uh, when they go to the doctor's office to watch the IUD being removed, the doctor, (laughs) the whole thing with the doctor is so goddamn good because he's like, you people came for me. Leave me alone. And and Albert Brooks slowly, like, you're like, what? what?" He's like, you 60 minutes people. And then, um, and then, you know, Albert Brooks convinces them that we're not here for you. We don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know, we're here to film. This this woman's giving us permission. Here's some money. And then he looks at him again and is like, you're the baby snatcher. <laughs> and then the whole <laughs> thing starts. You, you took all those babies from those women. And it's it's such a great, like, uh, like, a, it's, you know, there's. And here's why, like, th- I think that's a really good, like, microcosm of why Albert Brooks is so, so genius, because, like. If you never found out what was going on, and here's just this doctor who's afraid the 60 Minutes people have found him, and when they're just trying to film uh, Charles Grown's wife getting an IUD removed, that's funny enough, right? But the fact that after they calm him down, he agrees to and they give money, then you find then you find out exactly what he's done, or at least a very heavy implication of what he was accused of, uh, is so good. It's like he's so good at, at figuring out like what the joke is and then attacking it from every possible angle in a in a non I think sometimes very non obvious way. Yeah, and, and uh, I think the reason he recognizes him is because he pulls his hands over his face because he's been covering his face the entire time so the camera yeah. can't film him. And he pulls his hands down to touch the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's when he gets recognized. Uh... Ethan, what other what, what were some moments that you uh, want make sure we wanted to talk about or just like, you know, we're fucking hilarious because this is very funny. My my very favorite one is when Mrs. Yeager is committing the extreme act of transference of uh, sort of more emotionally investing herself in Albert Brooks than she is in her own husband and collapsing onto his chest in sobs. 
over. I don't remember what she's sobbing about at that point. And he is trying to comfort her by just patting the air behind her back, but without (laughs) actually making contact with her. And just how much that says about this character and his desire to be both sympathetic, but not actually engage with anybody on the level of an actual human being. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely delighted me. And I think that is the the major thing that we didn't hit. Um, I like that Harry Shearer co-wrote this movie. Yeah. I think Harry Shearer is a very funny man. And I like that. He, uh, he, I like. Um, he he uh, does a radio voice at one point. I could, I could hear it. <laughs> yep. Unmistakably. It's pretty funny. He must be. He stretched. <laughs> <laughs> but by doing voiceover work. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a huge uh, step away from him. a radio voice. He hadn't fully gone into his comic his comic persona yet but yeah you can hear him do it yeah but it's it's funny too because peter and i just you know covered a a month of movies that either heavily or tangentially uh feature harry sheer when we did the guest movies back uh back in november there's like this movie has a pretty damn good pedigree like penelope you, you mentioned harry Shearer uh co-wrote it penelope spheris worked on this behind the scenes which is like a very fascinating turn um because uh you know P- penelope spheris before she became sort of like a hollywood's go-to um broad comedy person after wayne's world like she was she's she's a documentarian like particularly for you know yeah the decline of western civilization series um like uh, that's that's very interesting to me as sort of a crossover. I wasn't able to find too much uh, too much of her input on the movie on the internet because I was like, well, she must have talked about this movie at some point. I'm sure she did. I just wasn't able to find anything. So, but yeah, the movie you know who else uh, from a comic pedigree standpoint? You know who else was heavily involved in this movie? Albert Brooks. Yes, uh, and Charles Grodin, who's the star. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so let's talk about what Charles Grodin does do in this movie. So, Charles Grodin doesn't get to do his big sort of comic blow-ups, but... Um, you say does... big like it's yelling. The, the Why Charles Grodin's so good is his big comic blow-ups are also very subdued and sad. Yeah, it's, it's more of a clenched teeth thing. But I mean yeah. big as in, like, you feel as if the screen is tearing apart. Um Big as in he takes over the scene and he dominates the moment and, like, the camera can't look away from him. Like, that's more what I mean by big. Um, I didn't mean to imply that, you know, he's only good when he's screaming at a, at a St. Bernard. Um, or Martin Short. Or Martin Short. He's really good when he's screaming at Martin Short, too. Ethan, <laughs> what's, your say... Clifford? What's, what's your Clifford take? Yeah, what's your take on Cliff? Oh, my God. That movie was so foundational to me as a oh, kid. I watched yeah. that movie constantly we're gonna reserve someday we're doing clifford you're reserved yeah oh fantastic i would love to revisit it it's been a long time but oh what a picture oh man i want to say mason (laughs) (laughs) that was a movie that i saw and didn't understand why i liked it but also like wasn't sure if i should be watching it with my parents and then went and saw it two more times in theaters (laughs) (laughs) my slow my slow uh project has been to make uh aaron like martin short uh and we're, we're getting I, there hold on i i never said i don't like martin short i said i generally don't find him funny like <laughs> what's nice the man. difference i, I love his dramatic nice roles <laughs> i don't like i don't i was like oh yeah i, <laughs> I don't like you know it's, i didn't say don't like gordon ramsay's food i said i ate in his restaurant and i'm I just saying like, like he I've Did you see on. his Macbeth? Because it was X with Hold it. on. I've seen him perform live. He seems like a very pleasant... It's not like I see him show up in a movie. 
And I go, fuck you, how dare you give Marty... He's not fucking Dane Cook or Larry the Cable Guy. He's not repulsive as a personality He's not repulsive. He just doesn't make me laugh. Like, is that why I took you to those Martin Short movies for laughs? Well, I didn't see anyone else laughing. (laughs) (laughs) The hyper-specific Simpsons reference, uh, which is appropriate for a movie... um, featuring uh, Albert Brooks and Harry Shearer. But yeah, I just, like, that's the thing. It's like, Three Amigos is a foundational thing for me that I, like, loved as a kid. He was the not funny one of the three. I, I, oh, sorry. Ethan, do you see what I have to deal with? Oh, it's I'm painful. Sorry. sorry, Ethan, do you see what I have to deal with with our guest, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love to watch. <laughs> um... I was gonna say, it's, uh, only murders in the building is really good. Um, he's I, I he's really good it. in that. I just start. I'm halfway through it. And, yeah. Uh, that that will that I'm very positive on yeah. him. On he's one of the funniest parts. Okay, so um, yeah, so what is Charles Grodin actually doing here? Like the like I discussed earlier, like he is sort of uh, winning in this movie because of the fact that he's he's very consciously showing that he's aware of the camera and he's sort of like almost like performing to the camera, but he's He's sort of burying any charisma he has um, to be like, well, this is what people do when there's people watching us. <laughs> like, it's sort of like the honey, we're in public for the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it's 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 so it's so incredible because like the usually I mean, usually you're watching a movie you want even a mockumentary. You don't want people to really recognize the camera. But Charles Grodin's performance seems to recognize the camera and almost every moment except for when he's like like fully unconscious or in a depressive episode yeah almost everything is under the breath like he hopes the camera doesn't catch him even though there's a guy with a camera on his head uh five feet from his face yeah that's that's what makes him so magnetic in this movie is because it, it feels like he doesn't want to be on camera but not to the point that he'll like hop off screen it's like that he like wants to be on camera and doing something cool but he knows that in he's he's that's not who he is. Like, no. There's nothing he can do to impress the camera, so he just wants to look, like, reputable. Yeah, it, it, he always saw himself as someone with, like, a, a, a successful veterinarian practice and a family. And, like, you know, you don't know if he was deluding himself from the get-go or just he, you know, everything when magnified by the presence of cameras and Albert Brooks has set everything, you know, to ruin almost immediately. Um but it's just not working out for him in a way that he keeps hoping gets better and never really does. Yeah, yeah. And I don't um I don't actually want to like step past uh Mrs. Yeager either. Um one moment. I What about Dean Yeager from the <laughs> Ghostbusters? Movie? Dean Yeager. <laughs> um I think D- Dean Yeager would probably find this experiment to be a joke. You probably think that they're a fraud. I mean, how long did he let the Ghostbusters practice before he came? <laughs> I mean, I think he would have let the experiment go on much longer than the Institute does. Uh, probably, probably. Do you think that? Um, do you think that uh, if he had just waited to hear them out, he wouldn't have kicked them out, and they never would have formed the? I Ghostbusters? mean, we never see him being hoisted by his own petard, but. They do become successful ghost hunters in the city. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that. 
Uh, Francis Lee uh, McCain, uh, who plays uh, Jeanette Yeager, um, is also fantastic in this movie. Um, she is not doing the same performance as uh, Charles Grodin because she's reacting to the camera very differently. She's like, it's not that she's like embarrassed of doing something that's going to, you know, ruin their family on camera. And she says things that are like actually very real and like are good yeah. fodder. Like that's one of the reasons that Albert Brooks is like questioning whether or not he's likable because like he kind of knows like Jeanette is real and it's like compelling. Yeah. 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 Like he kind of knows that like Jeanette would works. Um, however, um, she is, she is like pulling out actual drama. <clears throat> she hated going on the vacation. She, uh, is genuinely unhappy with this project. And she's she just wants to eat dinner with a heat pad on her stomach. Yeah. The fractures in the family are kind of showing because she, she's just like, she, what the what what uh what her husband is asking of her is rather unreasonable, which is like don't pretend there are cameras in the this house when she's deeply uncomfortable and 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 deeply un, uh, like just doesn't want to be seen. Um, she's 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 on her period and she didn't want to go on a vacation and she's tired. She just wants to eat dinner alone with her family with her heat pad and just like relax. And then like, there's just like guy, like alien bug guys walking around their house, filming them. Um, and, and, uh, I was going to say, is I want to call out also that, uh, Jeanette, uh, Yeager is played by Francis Lee McCain, who played, uh, the mom and gremlins. Um, Oh yeah. So, um, and say it's also so she's she's used to being married to insufferable people so I, think, <laughs> I think it does come back full circle into like you have to imagine that attractiveness was not important to her when yes. she chose a um a husband and i think um that refutes ethan's premise that we didn't get into for timing reasons yeah she was attracted to patent counts and grab if you're if your premise is that Charles Grodin is not hot, then I have a problem with your premise. <laughs> what about the Gremlins, Dan? Hot. I, I don't know. I haven't seen that movie I in mean, a while. I mean, he does. He's an inventor. But again, Is he a gremlin? That's, that's – some people are attracted to more things than looks, like whether they invent things and whether they purchase gremlins um, from, from random stores. Uh I think we can move to final thoughts. Yeah, One of the things that has been very fun about these these Albert Brooks movies is that they're amazing five-star movies, despite what some people would tell you that they're four-stars or four-and-a-half-star movies. <laughs> um, but they, you know, they're just amazing in their own right, and they don't necessarily need three hours of digesting and an hour of Mr. Ed bits. Although, I think noting that they... I, Peter, your call out that they killed a horse really means that we missed a golden opportunity, especially based on the last time Ethan was going to come on the show. It was also uh, horse related. And, and in that case, uh, uh, speaking of like eight things coming together at once involved a real life horse who died eventually. Not on the show, but I mean, he's not around anymore. Um <laughs> None of that has to do with Albert Brooks's real life, except to say that I, I am glad that we ultimately ended up cho choosing this order, and I'm glad it worked well for you, Peter, because I like seeing this movie first. I don't think it would have been the right way to do it. This is this is almost like I think this is a perfect reflection, probably of like where the Albert Brooks persona was in 1979, like this kind of like pathetic 
person who was always, you know, presenting himself as a successful showbiz person. That was kind of his, from what I understand, his comedian persona. That was his kind of the way he presented the short films on Saturday Night Live. And so I think like this works really well in the context of 1979 for an Albert Brooks performance. But I think if you're talking to like a modern audience that, you know, wasn't as aware of those things, I do think watching some of his other more uh, palatable, recognizable as movies, movies just helps you understand what you're getting into uh, and helps like reflect what kind of person Albert Brooks is. Cause this would be a weird one to go in cold. If like you only know him from, I don't know the voice of Marlin and finding Nemo. But I, I, I think regardless of, of, of how you come into it, it, I can't imagine anyone in the modern audience seeing this and not going, how the fuck did they get the, all of this right? Because it is eerily prescient and in a terrible way. Like I, I I'm, I'm assuming, you know, this was, this was definitely a playoff of something that actually happened with the PBS documentary. But the fact that like this, everything that we see here from like the destruction of the people that have to appear on co- uh, camera to the being con- can, uh, consistently like brainwashed and manipulated by the people behind them, that everyone kind of loses and everyone sells their souls in this kind of like reality television. I think the fact that it became so ubiquitous uh, is would be terrifying to to Albert Brooks. Probably is. I'm sure there's some interview where someone's asked him about it that I didn't look for or find. Um, but uh, beyond all that, it is a fucking just hilarious goddamn movie, and I love it so much. And um, I, I probably would put it as his absolutely like. I don't know if it's my favorite of his movies, but it definitely is. I think the funniest. Peter, what do you got for final thoughts? Um, final thoughts. Yeah. So uh, not a whole lot, but I do quite love that this is a kind of matches the cynicism of modern romance in one oh, specific yeah. aspect that I, I, I noted, which is so he has a rant at the end right before he burns down the house. And he's like, the audience loves fake. They crave fake. And so he's like, I'm going to manufacture something to uh, ensure that this is an exciting film. And what he doesn't realize is he's been manufacturing the entire time. And what I, <laughs> yeah. I fundamentally love is a movie about a bastard who ends the movie with a false epiphany or <laughs> some sort of false victory. Yeah. And like, I was like trying to think of like, I was like, what is the best comedy equivalent of this? And there's like not a whole lot of comedy movies about like bastards who kind of like fit this bill. But the movie that kept coming to mind when I was thinking of this is uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Great call up. Where he's just on the boat covered in monkeys. He has managed to murder everybody and everything near him. Uh, that's, that's not a monkey. Um, and he's just sort of floating on this, like, empty conquest. But he, he thinks of himself as this, like, emperor of the new world, this emperor of the Americas. And, like, I kind of love, even though that's, like, obviously dramatically different in terms of scale. And, like, Albert Brooks in this movie is not a, a, a brutal genocidal colonizer. Um, he, him burning down the house and sort of, like, dancing in the flames because it's going to make great footage reminded me of that like these like there's something about that 70s cynicism that we would lose um this movie is right on the cusp going into the 80s we would lose a lot of that cynicism in the 80s sort of stand-up era notably like i'd say like after a few years into the 80s like a lot of the early 80s movies are really cynical in the sense too but once we get into the full-on like reagan era a lot of 80s comedies like 
They they made yeah, we, cynical. We, ta- we talked about how how poorly so many of them have aged with modern romance. Yeah, and like some of them may be cynical. Of course, it's possible. Um, a lot of them are parodies or satires of themselves. Like you know, better off dead. A lot of the best ones are, are like better off dead or parodies yeah. are cynical about themselves. Um, but like so so many of them that filled up you know that fill up like Comedy Central blocks um, for most of the eighties are um, these. Uh, zippy movies that have almost nothing to say about character um, yeah. and do not let quiet little moments act as comedy. Like the moments you can't write, like Tr- Charles Grodin making a little face, making me die laughing. Like you can't really write that. Um, you can work with an actor and find a moment and kind of work that sort of attitude into a script, but you can't really like write that as a joke. So a lot of these 80s scripts ended up being like police academy movies. Where yeah, they're all like, slobs versus stops. Right? Yeah. These big moments of triumph. Good, good or bad, you know, they became joke machines. Um, and this movie, while having jokes all the time, many of the jokes are like, the, like blink and you'll miss them. Um, and that's one of the things I love about this movie is that like that sort of that, that sort of cynicism is not sort of uh, uh, free-floating. The cynicism is tied into the fact that, like, uh, Albert Brooks wanted to make a character movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good call out with the Aguirre Wrath of God, because it does sort of remind me of just a lunatic who never stops being a lunatic, but, but yeah, kind of embraces his lunacy while thinking he's finally, like, uh, reach an epiphany that is just like more of the same at a higher level. Which <laughs> yeah. uh, he thinks it's something Ethan. new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ethan, what do you got for final thoughts? My final thoughts are that um, I think I, I do like this movie maybe a little bit less than, than the two of you. I do think the shape is a little weird. Um, I, as I have said a couple of times, I agree with some of Roger Ebert's criticisms. <laughs> so go, go read his horribly cruel one star yeah. review, yeah. which he amended in 1996 to say, it, you can see it at the bottom of his review, just in parentheses, <laughs> it says, but almost 20 years later, I'm still thinking about some of these gags. Um, I, Gene I, Cisco got this one right. He gave it three and a half stars and I usually am on the Ebert side of the Cisco and Ebert. Device. As most bright thinking people are. Um, I think this is a terrific movie. I think you cannot possibly take Albert Brooks for granted. I think this is – I need to rewatch Defending Your Life as an adult who is not bouncing off it as a child. <laughs> um, it's it's maybe my least of the modern romance lost in America real life. Um, just because I, I do find something so sort of strange about the way it's, it's constructed, but maybe I'll, I'll rewatch it and, and realize that like with so many things that are just sort of, uh, unusual and, and alienating, uh, is actually incredibly rewarding once you give it a, a little more time to steep. So for what it's um, worth, I think I gave this, I, I'm remembering back to the first time I saw it, and I think I felt somewhat like the structurally I, I wanted more of the family or even like institute scenes, and I felt like it was structurally a little off. So I think this is a movie that started as like a four, four and a half stars for me, and I, I've seen it like four or five times now, and the last few times I've given it five stars pretty consistently. But for what it's worth, I do think it's one that now that you – like a lot of good comedies, now that you know where it's going and you understand – like you don't have to be paying attention to what scenes are coming in the plot contrivances. It's easier to settle in, and I think 
I think some of those criticisms would melt away if you saw it more. But I, I do recognize feeling a little bit that way the first time I saw it, too. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a surprising movie. And yeah. surprising can be a little off-putting the first time. And, and I would not be surprised if I rewatched this and realized that it is it is one of, you know, whatever. It's like I say, it's it is... It, it would be to your detriment to take Albert Brooks for granted in in any context, especially with these four early movies that are are so sort of uh, epochal. Let's say e- epochal. E e p o c h a l. I think they're definitely EPs, and like a lot of good EPs, like uh, Pixies, Come On Pilgrim, you know, they're classics. Totally. Um, I that's that's a, that's my final thoughts is that the Pixies made classics. Um, for a while and then they they have decidedly not lately um ethan but what i'm sure you have a lot of great things to promote is what i'm trying to say incorrectly oh i mean please check out bright wall dark room at brightwalldarkroom.com we are a film journal devoted to a different lens on film no hot takes lots of long reads uh and and that is what i love doing day to day um, and come later this year, I am working on a podcast project that I hope you check out and enjoy and come even later this year. I'm working on a book called the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson colon American Apocrypha that I hope you check out and enjoy as well. And also I am often on, we love to watch and I have a great <laughs> time, even though they make me stay up way past my bedtime. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, uh, we feel like that's when, when you – I don't know if you know this because, you know, people aren't always the best judge of themselves. But you give your best material when you want things to be over. We've never – I shine that. past midnight. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're unlike the gremlins from the Daffy gremlins. <laughs> you do very well after midnight. And we try to, Excellent. you know, like, like the best directors. You were a director – yourself still are a director oh i forgot about that i made a movie called west of her you can find it currently on tubi and a a great variety of other channels but people seem to really like that it's on tubi for some reason so check it out over there i have purchased an hd copy of voodoo so i can check it out there i would recommend doing that if you have it's everywhere it's everywhere uh yeah but i you know as a director you know that sometimes you have to influence your actors uh you know you can't just say be tired you have to get them in a situation where they're tired and then roll camera that's what we're doing here ethan and i appreciate here's another one here's another one i wrote a play about the last year of james dean's life it's called fast young beautiful buy a copy on amazon it's one of my favorite things i've ever done and there's no real opportunity to promote it ever so here i am on we love to watch read fast young beautiful i think it's pretty nice and then Uh, i own a copy do you yeah well thank you I sent you a picture of it when I bought you it. You did. You're right. Well, thank you so much for doing that because it's a thing that I did and I when am guests come on and promote stuff, I, I forget there's an audience and I assume they're just <laughs> promoting them to me and I usually comply. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you'll have to come back and talk about your next book once that's out. Let's do it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, next week we are doing Lost in America. We're doing it with Rick Kelly. The great Rick Kelly. The great Rick Kelly. The great, always available Rick Kelly. Uh, He's a great side grade from David Clark, who we hope to have on for a redo. (laughs) The great David Clark. The great. They're both great. I wouldn't rank them. Um, 
We'll talk about this later. Yeah, it implies that I have, but I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't but, do it again. Uh, I won't rank them anymore. Uh, but Rick will be on next week to, to talk about Lost in America, which I think is a fitting end to our Brooks month. And with that, just remember, as you could tell, especially as it got later, none of this podcast was scripted. This was all very real. Minus the parts we edited. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> would a real co-host of the show be that sleepy? No. Who would be sleepy on, on a podcast? On shoe. On oh, shoe. shoot. Good night. Specifically to Ethan. Yeah, great night. Good night. I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way. On the way. The way I'm slipping away, I turned my feelings on. You made me untouchable for life. Yeah, yeah. You was a light. It hit me like a tongue. You hit me like a tongue. No, no, no. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)